Well, would you join me in prayer as we get ready to hear from God's word this morning? And Father, we pray that you would in, indeed shepherd us through this passage, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, apply it to our hearts, that we would be active listeners seeking, yes, to be good hearers, but also by your grace and strength to be doers of your word. Would you comfort, encourage, would you chasten and, um, and move? Would you do what needs to be done in each and every soul here? Above all, we pray for those who are not yet in Christ, that you would open blind eyes, bring true faith, true repentance to those hearts that they might know the blessing of salvation, a right standing with you, and indeed, as we heard, adoption as children of the living God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in 2 Timothy chapter 3. As we read earlier, we focused on verse 10 last time, and we'll be focusing on verses 13 through 15 want to read to you just an update because to some degree it, it really correlates to a church that we've been praying for and we, we support, and it's regarding India, and this report is coming from Voice of the Martyrs. Under Prime Minister Modi, the Hindu nationalist organization Rashtriya Sangh, it's actually the RSS, has seen a 20% increase in membership. Its emboldened base seeks to forcibly unite India under Hinduism, despite the country's great diversity of languages, cultures, and religions. Although Prime Minister Modi has publicly said his government will not tolerate religious discrimination, his actions have proved otherwise. Vague policies, such as laws forbidding the conversion of Hindus, have passed in several Indian states, and the push for a similar federal law has gained support. These state anti-conversion laws have long been used against pastors, church planters, and evangelists. Conversely, reconversion ceremonies known as Gar Vapsi, or homecoming, which return Indians to Hinduism, sometimes by force, have become increasingly common. Despite greater government restrictions on Christianity, churches are growing it goes on to describe the kind of persecution that's occurring. Uh, there's imprisonment, there's uh, certainly um, martyrdom, there's, there's death to, that's happening to Christians. We heard a little bit about this, or I did when I was listening to Harshit, of how serious this is in Uttar Pradesh. That's the uh, province that Lucknow is in, and that's where Satchavachan Church is. If you look in your bulletin, um, that church that we're supporting, that seminary that we're supporting, it's serious. There's serious persecution that's occurring. At any moment, someone could turn them in. There are people that are specifically out there just to out churches, to out pastors. They're looking for them so that they can bring the nationalist mob against them. And I use that term because in India, that nationalism, if you will, is focused on bringing Hinduism to be the one religion in India. And so... Persecution is a reality. Now, last week, we, we looked at verse 10, and I introduced our time describing some of the issues that we face as a country. We, 
We talked a little bit about the, the parental rights issues that, um, that are happening or, you know, being suppressed, uh, parental rights being suppressed in our country, and, and the reason, because of secular ideologies and, of course, an unbelieving world that we live in. And I want to ask this week unequivocally this question, are we as Americans being persecuted? That's an important question for us to consider. It's, it's something that we need to think about because our text is dealing with it explicitly. And so we have to understand how that correlates to us here in America. We might immediately think of persecution, persecution such as in India or North Korea or Eritrea or China or somewhere else in this world. And we might think only of violence or imprisonment and death. That, and those are the things that could come to mind immediately. But the question I asked isn't whether the most severe form of persecution is happening to Americans. It's whether persecution is happening, whether Americans are indeed being persecuted. That's the question. There was an article a few years back that was written by Kevin DeYoung, a well-known author. We heard him speak at Cross. And to summarize the article, he answered the question, yes, Christians, Americans, are, are being persecuted here in the United States. Christians in America are. He went on to express that, that maybe not as severely as other places, or maybe not as widespread as in other places. And then he goes on to describe this word, which I've described before, but I'll, I'll do it again for you. The word persecution in, uh, in the New Testament is a word that has a, a wide domain, and it can include violence. It can include harassment. Um, it can even be used positively to be just pursuing someone. And, and so when you think about then, that, then start asking that question again. Are we being persecuted? Because that word has a number of meanings. Jesus declares this. Listen to Matthew 5.10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. It's a blessing to be persecuted. He's saying that, and he goes on to say, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You don't have to be dead to be blessed, just so we all understand that. And then he goes on in another couple of verses to see the domain of this persecution. He says in verse 11 and 12 of Matthew 5, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now we use this persecution as a, as a summarized kind of word to include those other kinds of activities, whether it's the mockery, whether it's the, the evil speech or the slander, reviling, whatever it might be, is all under that same banner of the word persecute, persecution. And so both of these aspects are seen in Matthew chapter 10. And there's a reason why I'm going through this. It's important, again, for the application of our passage today. I don't want it to not land on us because we don't think that we're persecuted. That wouldn't be helpful for us today. Uh, I'm not just going to preach a sermon and tell you, go pray for people who are persecuted. You should do that. But we need to be equipped. We need to be prepared. In Matthew 10, verse 21 and 22, listen to what it says there. Brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. But there's another aspect. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. 
So even that hatred that the world has for us is a part of that banner, if you will, of persecution. There's another article that describes three different aspects of persecution that we see in our country today. Persecution in politics. I'm not going to expand on that. You can go and do the, the study yourself and understand that this is, this is happening today. Um, there's a, this, this phrase called lawfare that's happening today, and it's, it's used against people who, who have conscience issues about uh, going to a wedding that's a same-sex wedding, and, and, and their conscience prohibits them, so then lawfare is used to persecute them, right? These things are happening in our country. It goes on to talk about persecution in colleges. Professors who don't, you know, who don't fit the status quo can lose their tenure, can be fired. If you dare, if you dare teach creation in a biology class, I mean, they will go unhinged on you in most universities, secular universities especially. Not to mention the students who speak up and raise their voices in class. Persecution in public schools. Well, we've seen this, and we talked about this last time, the videos on, on the school boards and what's going on in the classroom and, and how many are being ostracized because they don't conform to the mob. And I'll use the term, the woke mob, right? They don't conform to their ideas. The overall point and the reason why I bring all of this up to you is because we have to recognize these realities that are occurring around us. We don't want to overstate persecution, in, in the United States, but there's no value in downplaying persecution either. We, we need to be equipped. And, and so understanding these realities helps us to take hold of, of God's word and find the comfort, find strength, find resolve to press on in our faith boldly. We need this truth. We need this word. We don't just say, well, this is for the person who's in prison in China. We need it today. And so we're looking at this section, again, we started in verse 10, and we saw this main idea, and it's this, and there are notes if you want to follow along in your, uh, in your bulletin. This is the main idea that we've seen so far. God encourages endurance through teaching, conduct, and the perseverance of godly examples. God encourages endurance through the teaching, conduct, and perseverance of godly example. We've seen so far that God encourages endurance through the teaching and the conduct, and we just started to get into this idea of perseverance with the word steadfastness, which I'll get to in just a moment. But our focus today is really on that last statement, and it's this, that God encourages endurance through the perseverance of godly examples. God encourages, he encourages us in endurance or to endurance through the perseverance of godly examples. There's, there's a strong emphasis in this passage on persecution. That's why I've kind of laid some groundwork for you so that we might be able to think about it rightly. And it's not always going to be a direct assault. It's not always going to be violence. It's not always going to be, you know, some kind of loss. I've split this up in two portions. So we'll be looking at two things today. We're going to see this main idea first. God encourages endurance through the perseverance of godly examples. That's verse 11. We're going to see that example. We can't miss it. It's profound. And it should be moving. It should be helpful. It should be enabling and empowering. And then the second thing we're going to see in verses 12 and 13 is that God equips the saints for endurance through wise preparation. God equips the saints for endurance through wise 
preparation, we'll see the instructions given to us that kind of pull back from the teaching of godly examples. We'll see the instructions in verse 12 and 13. So let's take a look at this first point in verse 11. God encourages endurance through the perseverance of godly examples. To see someone endure oppression, to see, to hear, to read about, to know that this is occurring is profoundly moving. And, and so let's, let's read. I'll go back to verse 10 and we'll read through verse 11. Verse 10, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. That's where we left off last time. That kind of transitions us, steadfastness, into my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. That's what we're looking at. First, that's what we're going to see. And I want to remind you of something that we saw last time. Remember this, the importance of following godly examples. We, I set that up last time, but I'm just going to remind you briefly how important it is to see the intensive personal pronoun here. So grammar lesson, and again, going back to this idea, you yourself, Timothy, is a grammatical expression meant to be intensive so that he would know and recall these things, that he would remember, yeah, I have... I have followed and seen this. I have known this. And Paul's trying to bring that back to him. He's looking to Paul as a godly example. And I, I'll give you this passage again. This is a biblical principle, Proverbs 13, 20. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but a companion of fools will suffer harm. So keep that in mind because we want to attach ourselves to, look to, read, consider, think about godly examples. There are enough of the other out in the world. But when you spend all your time looking at the latest whatever idol out there and you spend a disproportionate amount of time thinking about worldly ideas, then you're missing the point of all the godly examples that are before us. And some you have to search out. And so let's get to verse 11. Look to those who have persevered through real persecution and suffering. Look to those who have persevered through real persecution and suffering. That's what we see in verse 11. My persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. And again, you have followed this. You know this, Timothy. That, that you've seen, you've known, you've understood, you've been with me in some of this. That's the point. That's the idea. Imagine how life-transforming that would be to see someone going through these kinds of things. I'm not telling you to take a trip to, you know, um, Somalia or to take a trip to Eritrea um, or India or wherever just so you can, you know, see someone being persecuted. That's not the point. The, the point is it's, it's supremely instructive for us to consider these things and to, and to know about them. We already learned that we should look to those godly examples who persevere or who are, who are steadfast in their walk amidst trials. That's verse 10. That's that word steadfast. And that's an intensity that's associated there. It's not just any 
kind of steadfastness. It's probably through some kind of adversity, some obstacles and difficulty. That's the idea. And Paul is a wonderful example of that. He's, he is that in living color. And once again, we need that. We need that example. It's in scripture. It's through church history. It's with contemporaries. And we learned how important that is as we face suffering ourselves. I left close to the end with this passage and I'll bring it up again. In 1 Peter chapter 5, we have this amazing statement here. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for whom he may devour. And verse 9 tells us how. Well, how do you, how do you resist the devil? Well, well, it says first resist him, but how? Firm in your faith. Okay, that's important, my faith. But what? How do I, how do I apply that faith? Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. That's what Timothy is receiving from Paul right now. That's what Paul is serving up to Timothy and to us this very day. He's serving up this example of suffering. And it's doubtful that any of us will experience the exact same kind of suffering. But that doesn't mean it shouldn't be impactful for us. It's beyond what we will probably experience in our lives. And so it's humbling, it's encouraging, it's strengthening, it's empowering. Timothy knew very well that Paul suffered for his gospel faithfulness. He knew very well that he suffered. And, and what Paul's doing is he's seeking to, to bring these, these memories back to Timothy's mind. That's what he's doing. That they might be palpable. They might be right there in the forefront of his mind as he faces the kind of opposition and difficulty and challenges that are before him. Now, we see some locations that are listed here. And we all know, don't we, that, that Paul suffered in a number of different places. It wasn't just these three. But he lists these three. And you have to say, well, why does he, why does he list these three? They were very meaningful to Timothy because they occurred right around and in his hometown. This is where Paul met Timothy on his second missionary journey. And it's likely that he might have at least been known by Timothy in the first missionary journey because he lived in these areas that Paul ministered to. And so we have the first one, Antioch, which is Pisidian Antioch. That's the distinction between Syrian Antioch. And Syrian Antioch is where he and Barnabas were sent out on their first mission. That's, that's the Antioch, the church at Antioch. This is a different one. This is in Asia Minor. It's named for Antiochus, probably Antiochus IV, who ruled the known world for a period of time. But as we go to the book of Acts, I want you to see that at Antioch, Paul was forced to leave the city in Acts chapter 13. Listen to this, Acts chapter 13, verse 44 and, and following. The next Sabbath, almost a whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Praise God. But the Jews 
incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium and listened to this. Listen to this. The disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. They were persecuted. They were driven out. And yet they walked away with joy because they knew God was moving. This is what Paul experienced in his trip to Antioch. And then Iconium, Acts chapter 14. Look with me there at verses 1 through 7. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Man, we could just have an amazing aside here. You want to talk about poisoning minds, mind viruses that are being, that are afflicted upon the masses today through all manner of different devices and media and film and music and social media. No, we'll just stop there. And so they remain for a long time speaking boldly. Wait, 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 wait. They poisoned their minds and yet they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them. They learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. They tried to stone them. They tried to take them under their charge and to, and to literally kill them. This is what's going on. This is what he's calling Timothy to, to remember. He knows all about this. And I'll get to that in just a moment because he meets he takes Timothy on mission with him in the second missionary journey, but I'll get to that next. But then at Lystra, the third that he lists here, Paul was stoned and he was left for dead. And I want you to listen carefully again to these words in Acts chapter 14, verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. He went back into the city. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. These places that were persecuting them, they, they returned. What were they doing there? Verse 22 strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. And this is what he was saying to them. Listen, that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, when you hear those things, you should be moved to recognize, okay, so persecution is a part of the Christian life. It's, there's persecution. Yeah, there's a point where you say, yeah, I still have much to preach, and so it's probably time for me to move to the next town. I've done a lot of preaching here, and now they want to stone me, and there's other places that need to hear the gospel. That's wise. For those of you who are wondering, because this is a big deal that's made about made of in the commentaries that, wait, hold on, the, t the times are all off here because um, Timothy did not join Paul until his, his second missionary journey, and so why would he be bringing these cities up? Because Timothy lived there. That's why... <laughs> 
because this is likely where he was converted. He may even have seen or at least known firsthand of these persecutions. That's what seems to be implied in our text here, that Timothy knew about these things. It could have been instrumental in his conversion. We don't know. We know he was raised in the word of God. We'll see that next time. But the reason why Paul brings it up is because it's so close to Timothy, his life, his his sphere of, of living. He could have brought up other examples, but he brought up these. Surely Timothy must realize something else that we'll get into more later, that he too could suffer these same kinds of persecutions, that these things could happen to him. There's an implication here. There's an explicit description of it later on that we'll see in verse 12. It's good for us at this point to to recognize that Paul's suffering may be exemplary because of the sheer number of them. In our men's breakfast, we recounted some of these. um, One of the men read these, and I think it's good for us to, to do that again in 2 Corinthians 11, 23. Here's some of Paul's sufferings. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm not talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments with countless beatings and often near death. By the way, Paul's not trying to boast. What he's doing is distinguishing himself from those who are claiming he's a false apostle, that they're the real apostles. He's dealing with that in in this letter, okay? What he's basically saying is, look at what I've endured for the faith. You want to get down to brass tacks of what you value then then look at what you suffer for it. And he goes on. He says in verse 24, five times I've received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. I don't have to go any further. Five times I've received the cat of nine tails, 39 times. The fact that he even survived is almost a miracle because of the consistent issue of infection and sometimes blood loss because of this. 39 was calculated to keep them from dying to endure as much pain as possible, but we'll read on. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. We just read about that. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of the anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Here's the example set before Timothy. Yeah, he knows Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. He knows much more than that. In fact, we also know that in Hebrew, I won't turn there, but in Hebrews 13.23, that Timothy was imprisoned as well. And so Timothy experienced at least some of this. He was there with Timothy on some of these missionary journeys. So he saw, he knew what he had to encounter. And we'll see that explicitly in just a moment that Timothy had to realize this too could happen to him. But but the vivid nature of Paul's endurance should serve to embolden us all. It it should strengthen us. It should hearten us. You know, I've said it before, it should... It should put a a firm step in our walk. He declares here in verse 11, 
which persecutions I endured. And, and when he says that, some say this could be exclamatory, what persecutions I endured. Something like that instead. In other words, think about this. Timothy, you followed, you know what's facing you. Look to this, consider this. These were serious. Added in with the others that Timothy also knew of make for an overwhelming backdrop to see what kind of endurance can be walked with the Lord. We see it in, in Paul. What kind of suffering can be endured? Whether we consider the sheer determined continuation of Paul in proclaiming the gospel or whether we consider the fact that he returns back to these areas where he was persecuted and even stoned and left for dead, and he goes right back and, and strengthens the saints there. He shows his face up in these places again because ministry was far more important. The purpose of God was far more important. And that goes back to, remember, verse 10, you, have, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life. Timothy, you know why I'm here. I'm not here to be safe. I'm not here for comfort. I'm not here for ease. I'm here for God's purpose, for his glory. And you see that in real living color here, Timothy. You've seen it. You know what it looks like. Or his singing in the Philippian prison, in the jail with Silas. Or his first imprisonment in Rome when he's confident of God's providence and he sees God using it to prosper the gospel. Read Philippians chapter 1. And so when we look at this, Paul's godly example in persecution and suffering should encourage Timothy, it should encourage all of us to endure. It's real life. It, it is the most blessed picture for us. In, in your lowest of lows, remember that someone's gone even lower. Someone's experienced even greater and graver. And that leads you to the Lord Jesus and his suffering, and his endurance of, of shame. That's why we're to look to him, the author and finisher of our faith. He's the one who despised the shame and went to that cruel cross for us. But the most important thing about this is the true source of our encouragement is the Lord himself. It's not a single man it's not one person. It's, it's not just an, an individual, you know, that's been a Christian in this life or someone who's long since died like the Apostle Paul or anyone else, any other martyr you choose. Paul tells Timothy the source of it all, doesn't he? He says, which persecutions I endured yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. The Lord, the Lord rescued me oh yeah he endured so many trials but the lord rescued him Th this is where our strength come from comes from Th this is where hope is solidified this is where faith becomes sight it's the lord it's the confidence of his word it, it, it's the reality that the lord has rescued us and will continue to rescue us that, that's the food, that's the nourishment, that's the strength, that's the, the emboldening. Let's be sure of one thing as well, that 
we understand that not all rescue will come in this life, but rather in the next. Paul maintains his his steadfastness, not because he believes that he will escape every situation of harm, every imprisonment, every stoning. That's That's not the point. He continues steadfastly because he knows and believes in this transcendent reality that he proclaims to the Philippians in Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You see, that's the reality for him. That's the escape that we all look forward to who are in Christ, that we all pray for for those who are outside of Christ because they're imprisoned right now in their sin. You are, my friend, in bondage to sin under the sentence of judgment like every one of us was. We were too imprisoned in that sin. You can't move to the left or to the right without sinning because you are in the prison of sin. That's the scripture. And you need freedom. You need to be released from that. And that comes only through the Lord Jesus. He is the one who sets the captives free. And the way he does that is not to go and and turn a key. The way he's done that is to keep the law on your behalf, to come in human flesh, the God-man, the creator himself. The way he did that was to, to take the punishment that you deserve if you trust in him. The gospel is the key to unlock you, to give you freedom to live for Christ and to obey the law and to enjoy the fruits of that because that law was meant for your flourishing. And Christ has done it. He paid that price on Calvary. He bore our sin in his body on the tree. And so he's died and he's been raised and he beckons you. Trust me, you'll be set free. Trust me. And so run to him. Here's what it looks like to walk with God. Here in the Apostle Paul, we see this example of the gospel in living color. We we see it in 3D, 4D, whatever you want to say. And what a power to see how well one lives in this light. What a grace to visualize the gospel life of endurance, to see it in our petty complaints, in our discontent over the nothingness of nothing more than a hangnail in the grand scheme of eternity. We find all kinds of things to to set us off. Oh, how we need to see this. Oh, how we need to behold it. And of course, the power of Paul's testimony is only possible by the fact that the Lord Jesus set him free from his blindness, his bondage, so that he could serve him and rejoice even in the midst of suffering. I want you to listen to to Matthew Henry's comments on this. Yes, I look at other commentaries. I'll just tell you there are very few others that that put things as well as Matthew Henry. So if it seems like I've been quoting him, it's just because I I really am looking for him, not as much for all the interpretations, but more for his his eloquence. So listen, listen to this. When we know the afflictions of good people, but in part... They are a temptation to us to decline that cause which they suffer for. 
When we know only the hardships they undergo for Christ, we may be ready to, to say we will renounce that cause that is likely to cost us so dear in the owning of it. But when we fully know the afflictions, not only how they suffer, but how they are supported and comforted under their sufferings, then instead of being discouraged, we shall be animated by them especially considering that we are told before that we must count upon such things. You see, when Paul is speaking to Timothy, he's reminding Timothy of all that he's been through. Not just the suffering, but the fact that God has rescued him over and over, the supporting of it. Oh, we need to see that. We need to see the whole of it. And God encourages then endurance through the perseverance of godly examples. The second thing we're going to see somewhat briefly here is that God equips the saints for endurance through wise preparation. God equips the saints for endurance through wise preparation. We really return back to the first point of last week. And we look back to verse 10, you, however, have followed my teaching. You know the doctrine. You know the teaching. In particular, this is teaching focused on suffering. That's what this teaching is. And so, listen to verse 12, because there's an explicit point of what's already been implicit. We must expect persecution. Look at verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Can I just say that again? Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not some, not might, not may, could be. That's why we started the way I started today, so that you could understand the broader picture of persecution, what it looks like, what it means. And I want to make sure also that we know that and are prepared and equipped for that likely outcome if it hasn't already happened in your life in some fashion, some way, even smaller than others. It doesn't matter. The expectation, by the way, that we read here isn't novel in the scriptures. It's not new. It's not something that you don't, you shouldn't have seen already if you've been reading the word of God. It's all over the place. And, and again, we saw it, and I'm going to read it again, but after Paul was persecuted by, by stoning at Lystra, he went on to, to Derby to preach the gospel. And, and again, he returned, as we mentioned, back to the place where he was stoned. And what is he saying? He's saying the same thing. He was strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, again, that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Not through many comforts, although that's a temptation in and of itself, right? Not, not through ease, not through the greatest lifestyle, but through these kinds of tribulations. This passage is a reminder to, to look to godly examples that the realities of gospel living would be seen. I, I, can't, I can't imagine it, but we've already been there, so I won't go back through it, but Paul declares this expectation of, of, of suffering elsewhere, just so we are reminded that this isn't novel and it's not just Paul, but we'll start with Paul. Paul says to the Philippians in chapter 3, these words, 
in verse 9 through 11. Chapter 3, verse 9 through 11, he says, I'll start in verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. This is a part of his aim that we already learned about in verse 10. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So again, we've seen this before. He's heading towards something. He's not just kind of meandering around. He has a purpose. He has an aim. Timothy, you know that, verse 10. You know my aim in life. You know my purpose. Verse 9, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. I don't know if we think about this very often, but that I may know him how and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. By any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I'm sold out for his purposes. I want to walk as he walked, 1 John. I want to follow in his steps, 1 Peter chapter 2. We also hear this from the Apostle Paul in Romans, but I won't go there. Chapter 8, you can go there if you want to, in, in verses 16 through 18. Or let's, let's turn to another apostle. How about Peter? I mean, he begins after telling us this great salvation that we have. This is great, wonderful and then he says in verse 6, In this you rejoice, this salvation, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Or, I mentioned to you chapter 2, I'll say it here, servants, Chapter 2, verse 18, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. That's a gracious thing. Where have you ever heard that in this world? It's a gracious thing to, to suffer unjustly at the hands of others. But he goes on to explain it's a gracious thing Verse 20, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this, this suffering, you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And he's one who's never sinned. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's what our Savior did. And of course, next, he himself bore our sin in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you're healed. He's quoting Isaiah 53. And then chapter 4, 1 Peter, uh, I mean, the whole, the whole letter is about this, but I'll give you one more. You've heard this many times, but again, this is not novel, this idea of, of us suffering persecution if we desire to live godly. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Here's how you ought to respond. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed 
because the spirit of glory rests on you. This is not novel. Some of you have been learning James chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. What are they producing in you? Steadfastness. And so, you can, we can go to the Old Testament, we can consider Job, we can go to the suffering servant himself in Isaiah 53, and we see the same thing. It's not novel. It is the story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. It is what we find the people of God doing and enduring. Example after example after example. But there are two very important distinctions that must be made about this statement in 2 Timothy verse, chapter 3, verse 12, about all will be persecuted. And it's right in the words there. It is all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus who will be persecuted. The idea is likely intensive as not just all who think they might want to live godly. That's not, what, that's not the idea here. Some of your translations actually say live godly, but the word desire is there. And that word desire we could translate to determine or resolve. I think those would be really good at capturing kind of the idea of the intensity of this. You are resolute so that it will be seen. Your desire isn't just something that's latent. Your desire is manifest. If you truly desire, if you are resolved to live godly, then what will you do? Live godly. And therefore, you will suffer persecution. Maybe that's why we have this translation, but I'm not for taking out words, so I, I think this word is really important. It's important. And of course, that um, is only going to occur as you live in union with Christ. As you live for Christ, as Paul so wonderfully expressed. As you live for his will as you live for his name, which is indeed for his person, for his will. So many look at this remark and, and they think, well, most Christians aren't really suffering persecution. And one question that we must ask when someone says that is, are, are they resolved to live a godly life in Christ Jesus? Are they living a godly life in Christ Jesus? And, and of course, this is where the, the health and prosperity false gospel begins to unravel. There is no theology of suffering in that. Certainly not one that comports with the scriptures. This is where the easy believism unravels. This is where this idea of casual Christianity, carnal Christianity, is completely blown out of the water. It doesn't match what we find in scripture. This is where modern church growth strategies begin to fall apart. And sadly, so many missions, world missions theories, begin to fall apart as well. Contextualization and others like it. Or you're just looking for professions. In many of these places, they're just adding Jesus to their, you know, their menu of, of gods and secretism. Well, we know what our God thinks of syncretism. Just look at what he did with his own people. And so it's no wonder that they're not persecuted. 
They're not resolved to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. But there's a second distinction that I want to make sure that you understand that I, I kind of opened with, but I'll just say it here. All may suffer persecution, but not necessarily of the same kind. Do you see? All will suffer persecution, but not necessarily of the same category. Not, not exactly the same. Not everybody's going to you know, be uh, martyred. Not everybody's going to be put in a prison. Not, not everybody's going to be you know, suffering some kind of violence or flogging or, or something like that. Beating. We learned that in the introduction. Again, Matthew Henry puts it well. He says, at all times, more or less, those who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. They must expect to be despised and that their religion will stand in the way of their preferment. In other words, they're not going to be preferred. People are not going to like them for their beliefs. Those who will live godly must expect it, especially those who will live godly in Christ Jesus. That is, according to the strict rules of Christian religion, those who will wear the livery and bear the name of the crucified Redeemer, all who show their religion in their conversation, who will not only be godly, but live godly, let them expect persecution, especially when they are resolute in it. You see, that's the point that we're seeing here, and that's what we should expect. If we don't expect persecution, then we'll not be prepared for it when it inevitably comes. And we might say something terrible like, God, why would you allow this to happen to me? Read your Bible about our sovereign God who works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Read your Bible and know and by God's grace, isn't this wonderful? It's kind of full circle. A normal reading of Scripture seems by design to prepare Christians for such opposition and suffering. Just read your Bible. I don't say that just... I'm not saying it tongue-in-cheek. I'm, I'm saying it as it, it is food. It is what prepares you. You cannot read through the Scriptures old and new and not expect persecution opposition, mockery, slander, and all these kinds of things. So that, if we think about it, that resolve to live godly that we just saw will include, living godly will include the rich and consistent study of the Scriptures. Thereby, those who resolve to live godly in Christ Jesus will indeed then be prepared for enduring that persecution because a part of the idea of godliness is that you study the word. You understand it as the supreme means of grace and so you then will be equipped. Isn't God so good? This little book by Thomas Case and uh, he's a Puritan and he was imprisoned and there's an introductory letter by Thomas Manton, another well-known Puritan. And listen to what Thomas Manton says as he heard and read some of this. He says to Thomas Case, Thank you for your thoughts concerning afflictions. I was pleased to drink from this fountain, and the half was not told me. To treat of afflictions when we ourselves flourish and abound in ease and plenty is more like the orator than the preacher and the brain than the heart. It seems that when you went into prison, the Spirit of God went into prison with you. When you were shut up to others, you still were open to the visits and free breathings of His grace. A prison cannot restrain the freedom of His operations. It would be a prison for sure to be shut up 
also from fellowship with the Holy Spirit, I begin to see the truth in Tertullian's discourse to the martyrs. Tertullian says this, you went out of prison when you went into it. And we're but sequestered from the world that you might converse with God. The greatest prisoners and the most guilty are those that are at large, darkened with ignorance, chained with lusts, committed not by the proconsul, but God. That's a perspective, isn't it? And then as he goes on, I think he has 21 different reasons that suffering is is good. He says in one of those, he says, through chastisements, God draws the soul into sweet and near communion with himself. Can there be any other reason for us to say, if that's what it takes to me, for me to be as near as possible to you, then why would I condemn it? Why would I say no to it? Now, I'm not telling you or anybody else to invite it. That's a whole different category. And then another one, he says, God increases our grace through affliction. There's so many words here that are a great blessing, but I'll, I'll leave you. And you can get this little book, by the way, at Banner of Truth. And it's called When Christians Suffer. The last thing we want to consider, though, in terms of being equipped to endure we must expect the intensity of persecution to increase along with ungodliness. We must expect the intensity of persecution to increase along with ungodliness. Look what Paul says to Timothy. He says, again, I'll start at verse 12 just so it flows a little bit better. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Remember that in the last days, verse 1, right? Chapter 3, verse 1, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty, times of peril, times of danger. That's what that word means. We've already learned that. He already warned that there was going to be those who, who had some kind of form of godliness, but were actually ungodly in character that would infiltrate the church. And for that to happen, it means that the, the outside world is getting worse and worse and worse. Because, so the infiltrations begin to be more on the increase, on the rise. So ungodliness is on the rise. This is a warning here for us. And we ought to look around and, and think about what we see around us, at least in, in our culture. And there are other places we could say something similar. Ungodliness is on the rise, not the decrease. All you got to do is open the paper or read an article, listen to the news, and you begin to see it. And that seems to fit well with the words of the Apostle Paul. We could say that some of these things have already been fulfilled. I, I just hesitate to say that because we see it on the rise, not the decrease. This is the last quote from Matthew Henry. He says, As good men, by the grace of God, grow better and better, so bad men, through the subtlety of Satan and the power of their own corruptions, grow worse and worse. The way of sin is downhill, for such proceed from bad to worse. Young people, I'm just telling you, you're thinking, I'm going to put this off. And, and you just need to understand that today is the day of salvation. You put it off and you just need to know that you, you keep going down that road. It's bad to worse. 
and you don't know that point where the conscience is hardened, you have no idea. Well, you don't want to find out either. And so there is an emphasis here, and I want to make sure um, that we recognize this. And, and one of the reasons why we need to know verse 13 is so we're not demoralized. We're not dejected. When we see someone who can't define what a woman is, we could just go, oh, woe is me. The world's lost. I can't believe. When we see someone being persecuted, we go, I can't believe this is happening. Wait, 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 wait. What do you mean? We expect it to happen. We're prepared for it to happen. We stand firm, ready to speak against it. We settle our souls so that we can endure it when it comes to our front door. Or maybe we step forward and go to that brother or sister's front door and say, we're here with you to stand for you because we know that you need it as we would as well. But there's an emphasis on on the key characteristic of, of the wicked. And I want you to see it in verse 13. Notice they're going from bad to worse. What's at the root of it? Deceiving and being deceived. Deceiving and being deceived. This is, this is such a root of sin. It's ultimately being deceived of the reality of who God is, his authority, his goodness, his majesty, his mercy, his grace. His blessed redemption that's available to all who trust in Him. And so the first sin was the entrance of another voice, wasn't it? And what was that about? Deception. Another version. A twisting. A distorting. And the enemy of our soul is described as the father of lies in John 8, 44. So there is no doubt when we look at our culture, we look around that... The world is deceiving and being deceived. And deliberately in many ways, deliberately figuring out how can we dupe this people? How can we lead them astray to our side, to our belief, if you will? The worst criminals in history were self-deceived and it seems blindness to the truth is growing. Well, let me say this before I I conclude because I think it's important. Some of you are caught today in this cycle of deceiving and being deceived. Some of you this very day, certainly unbelievers, you're caught in this cycle. There's no doubt you're being deceived. But even believers, we can be deceived. You might be deceived in thinking that your soul is not in jeopardy this very hour. You might be deceived into thinking you can follow your emotions and trust them. You might be deceived in in, in following the principles of the secular worldview and thinking that they sound wise and they sound great, the, the wisdom of this world. Some of you are deceived in thinking that you deserve something, that you haven't been given a fair shot. You should be able to do what you want, that your parents are too strict, that alcohol isn't that bad or drunkenness isn't that bad, that you can date and control yourself without accountability. But there's no harm at all in listening to secular music or watching profane movies or blowing people up in graphic detail in a video game. I'm fine. It doesn't affect me. You're being deceived. You're deceived in thinking that you're justified in, in your bad reaction towards others. It's their fault. Well, th- isn't that what Adam and Eve did? 
If they didn't do that, you're deceived into thinking that you can play and do what you want now and later, as I mentioned earlier, you'll, you'll take care of spiritual things. Here's a big one. You're deceived into thinking that immediate gratification is true satisfaction. That's a lie. It, it, these are lies. You're deceived into thinking that your discontent is warranted when God condemns it as a violation of the 10th commandment. Some of you may be deceived in thinking that you're okay spiritually when in reality your life, your priority, your habits, your speech, they reveal the need for repentance, not complacency. We ought all to be examining ourselves in these things, and, and I already gave an invitation to you who are in unbelief to come to Christ, come to the way, the truth, and the life. God is truth. Come to him that you might see and understand the truth and therefore see the imposter for what it is. Right now you're in bondage if you're outside of Christ and, and what you see seems to be beautiful when there's ugly, pussy, stinky, stenchy mess underneath it. It's just a facade. Come to Christ, find rest for your souls. Christians, be prepared for those who are going from bad to worst, watch, watch out for imposters, and otherwise you will be deceived. So bringing this all to conclusion, how we need to be examples ourselves and how we need to look to other examples so that we can endure the kind of persecution that's coming at us. And, and that brings the word of God to life as we read it we're humbled by it. We see those walking in it. We, we want to move a little closer to those people. We want to listen a little, you know, deeper to those people so that we can see and recognize the supremacy of God's word. And by the way, just so we know where we're heading, at the root of all of this, you want to know where we find this truth? We'll look at verse 14 through 17. It's the authoritative the inspired, infallible, sufficient word of God. That's what we need. And that's what Paul's going to take us to as we come back to this passage in a couple of weeks. Would you join me in prayer? Father, help us. Help us to be prepared. Help us to be those who, who are determined, who are resolute in living godly. Help us to be equipped so that when we are persecuted, we, we respond in a way that honors and glorifies you. That is a testimony to others. So that we, like Paul, can say to those that know us, oh, you, you've seen this. It's only God that enabled me to go through it. You know how? Because this word is true. Help us, Lord, to be those Christians. Help us to rid ourselves of whatever is holding on and keeping us from living more devoted for you. And help those who are already living this way to endure all the more. Because we need those examples in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.